Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. Delighted that God's brought us together this morning. Uh, as we're preparing our hearts to sit under God's Word, one of the topics that we're going to be discussing this morning uh, is briefly politics. And there's two books I'd like to give away to you and draw your attention to. One is by Robert Benet, and it's called Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics. As we're coming into political seasons, it's a good time to think about this. So if you'd like this book, raise your hand. Peter Fender, okay, come get it at some point. And this other one here is by John Lehman called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. This book just came out. Greg Harris, you can have it at some point. We also have these in our book stall. We've got three copies left. You're welcome to go purchase one. Thank you. Some of uh, Vanessa and my favorite uh, movies to watch are, are courtroom dramas. And uh, most recently, in the last few months, we've watched a few of our favorite ones. Uh, we watched uh, Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. And we also rewatched uh, A Few Good Men. And every good courtroom drama has this moment where there's this great cross-examination that just nails the bad guy, right? And I'm sure that's, if you're a lawyer here, I'm sure that's how it always goes, right? There's just at the very last second, at the very last moment, someone runs in, and it's the smoking gun, and everyone's just like, (laughs) that's what they teach you in law school, apparently. But my favorite moment, obviously, the scene in A Few Good Men is when Lieutenant McAfee is uh, pushing Colonel Jessup on the stand, and Jessup says, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide, and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I'd rather you just say thank you and go on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand post. Either way, I don't care what you think you're entitled to. Mitch McAfee says, I'm entitled to the truth, and Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. (laughs) And later on in the conversation, McAfee says, Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You're darn right I did. The smoking gun, just like that. The way that it always happens. Well, today, we continue in this study looking at Jesus who's being constantly questioned. He's being constantly questioned about the nature of his ministry, about the nature of his person, about the nature of his mission. And we continue this morning to look at our time when Jesus is in the temple, And the text is going to tell us that Jesus is in the temple all the way till chapter 24, verse 1. And today we're in chapter 22, starting at verse 15. And we're going to see here within the subset of Jesus being in the temple, him being questioned by people. Him being questioned, tried to be tricked and to be set up and to be caught in a snare of sorts. And yet every time at the end of each one of these three snapshots that we're going to look at, it says that the people marveled or the people were amazed So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be looking at three different groups of people that are questioning Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and an attorney, a lawyer. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a lawyer. So the first section will be verses 15 to 22. The second with the Sadducees will be verses 23 to 33. And the last section with the lawyer is verses 34 to 40. 
They're all trying to figure out who he is. And each picture gives us another facet looking at the jewel, looking at the diamond of who Jesus Christ really is. And at the end, I'll tip my hand a bit, we'll end by looking at verses 41 to 46, when Jesus tells us with an airtight conclusion of who he is. So those three points, and then a brief conclusion. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we get a glimpse into the picture of our Savior, the man Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look at these three snapshots, these three interactions that he has with the people around him, we would see him more clearly. We would worship him more perfectly. And our hearts would treasure him as ultimately beautiful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, the Pharisees. So there's two groups here that are addressed in uh, verses 15 to 22. Uh, it's the Herodians and the Pharisees. Uh, the Herodians are their supporters of the political power around them. The Herodians are supporters of the political situation that they're finding themselves in, and the Pharisees are not. So they want to come to Jesus, and they want him to come down on this situation. They want him to say, do you agree with the Herodians, or do you agree with the Pharisees? Which one is it, Jesus? So they come to him with this, what they think is a pretty simple question. Tell us if it's lawful to pay the tax. And we need to know something about this tax at the beginning here so we can better understand what Jesus is doing. The tax that Jesus is being asked about here is a specific tax. It's not that he's being asked about all taxes in general. He's not being asked about an income tax or even a property tax. Rather, he's asking about an annual tax that can be called a head tax. It's a tax that's just for living under Roman rule. It's a tax that's almost like a big thank you from the citizen and a you're welcome from the emperor. That's what it is. It's a yearly tax that is essentially a tax for the privilege of living under Caesar. It's like if we just wrote the president a check once a year, just like, it is so wonderful living under your rules, sir. We just want to give you this special tax just because you're so great and wonderful. That's the tax. It's a very specific tax. Something else we need to know about this tax. And this was, I've seen this text and read this text, and it's a very familiar text when we talk about politics in the church and so on. 
And there's a background to this text that I didn't even realize till this week when I was studying this out. This tax, this head tax, as scholars and commentators call it, was instituted about 25 years prior to this. And when it was instituted, there was this big revolt from the Jews. And this revolt was led by this guy named Judas the Galilean. And what he did when he came to them is he said, look, all Jews need to refuse to pay this tax. We need to refuse to pay this tax because it's not right. The next thing that Judas the Galilean does is he goes into the temple with this band of of warriors and he cleanses the temple. The third thing about Judas the Galilean is that he says, God will be our king and not Caesar. Okay. So guess what happens to him? He gets caught, he gets arrested, he gets put to death. So let's put this together real quick as we understand what the Pharisees and the Herodians are really setting Jesus up for here. Okay? Because this is all fresh in their minds. Jesus has been teaching about the coming kingdom of God. That's what his ministry has been marked by, the coming kingdom of God. In the previous chapter, Jesus has just gone into the temple and cleansed it. So feel the tension of the passage. They're coming to him and they're asking him the final question, the final piece. What do you think about the tax? The line has been drawn here. They're asking him if he's going to start a revolt. If he says, don't pay the tax... It's a signal that they're saying it's time to revolt against this occupation. But if he says, yes, pay the tax, some of those that have been following him will think that all of his claims thus far about the coming kingdom of God were for nothing. Because we have to understand that the people that are living, Jews specifically, are living under a social and political pressure. The kingdom of God was coming. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come in a tangible way to deal with real issues, certainly spiritual issues, but they were coming to deal, the coming kingdom of God would deal with real issues. Remember when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 comes on the scene and starts his ministry, and he reads from the Isaiah scroll in Luke chapter four eighteen, He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So they're asking him, are you bringing the kingdom of God? You know, we have a political cycle that's coming up in the next year, and man, I just really love it when we get to have a lot of political discussion around the presidency of the United States. I'm just kidding. I just love watching endless debate after endless debate and soundbite after soundbite. You know, one thing, though, that happens at the end of a political debate, I don't think this has ever happened, that the entire crowd looks at one candidate and simply marvel at what he just said. That never happens. But that's what happens in verse 22 here. What Jesus says here causes everyone in the room, both the Herodians and the Pharisees, to marvel. Why is that? Let me try to apply it to us. The first and important reason is to realize that Jesus does not give us easy 
pat political answers. Jesus does not give easy pat political answers, which means that Jesus is not solely represented by any political party. Jesus Christ is not represented solely by any political party. Jesus is not a Democrat, and Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus does not give us pat political answers. And we must remember that as a church. Because if our unity is first and foremost our unity together in Christ, that means anything else political is secondary. Which means that in some way a healthy church is going to be bipartisan. Because Jesus doesn't come down as a Republican or a Democrat. Now, let me push this even a little further, though. Jesus challenges the people of his day to think carefully and, and, and thoughtfully and theologically about the issues around them. There is a day potentially coming when it's untenable for a Christian to support a particular political party. Public intellectuals like Albert Moeller and Jonathan Lehman and public pastors like Doug Wilson in Idaho are noting that if the trajectory of the current Democratic Party continues the way that it goes in relation to its perspective on the death of a human being and its desire and what seems to be all-out pursuit of full partial birth abortion, it's potentially untenable for that to even be a Christian position. So we need to think carefully and theologically and thoughtfully about these issues. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you who to vote for ever. I am going to press you to think biblically, theologically, and wise God's thoughts after him. Because that's what Jesus would do. So what does Jesus do in the moment? He says, bring me a coin. Bring me a coin. And he says, whose image is on the coin? Whose image, whose icon, literally in the Greek, is on the coin? And they say, it's Caesar. It's Caesar's face that's literally on the coin. And he says, well, then give to Caesar what's his. You realize that this is literal, of course. Because in the ancient world, there wasn't a federal bank. There wasn't a federal bank. The, the, the money literally belonged to the emperor. And even the, 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 the treasury to make the coins themselves came from Caesar's treasure himself. The coin literally belonged to him. His face is on it. And Jesus is like, just give him the coin. Just give him the coin. But, look at the imagery here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his face is on the coin. His image is on the coin. But give to God's what is God's. The coin has the image of Caesar, so give it to him. But give to God's who is God's. Who has the image of God? You do. You do. Which means that Jesus is demanding that every single human being give themselves holy and completely to God because we bear his image. His mark is upon us. The tyrant may desire his money, but you cannot give yourself to him. The tyrant may desire his money back, but you can never give yourself 
to him. The point is this, that Jesus, yes, he is bringing his kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom of God, and he's bringing it in a way that no one possibly envisioned. Do you know what it says on the back of a denarius? We know this because we have several of them, you know, preserved from antiquity, and they're museums and so on. Do you know what it says on the back of a denarius? Caesar's on the front. You know what it says on the back? Describe Caesar as a son of God, as a high priest, and as the true king. And all the coins belong to him. All the coins throughout the empire declaring that Caesar is the son of God, the high priest, and the true king. And what does Jesus say in verse 19? He says, bring me a coin. Do you understand the implication? He didn't have one. He didn't have one. He didn't have one. He's the penniless prophet. He's the king without any money in his pocket. He's the son who doesn't have his inheritance. Jesus is. <laughs> Jesus is the real and true rightful son of God. He is the high priest who will stand in the gap for his people. And he is the true king that's coming to reign. And he's going to bring his kingdom through weakness. He's going to bring his kingdom through weakness. He's a revolutionary for sure, but not in the way that anybody ever possibly thought. He says, bring me the coin. What, what, show me the coin. Yeah, it's, it's got Caesar's face on it. Give it to Caesar. That's fine. Give the guy his money back. But he says, you belong to God. Give to God what is God's. What does that mean for me and you? Well, let me ask this question. We press this all the time. But how is the kingdom of God coming into your life? How is the kingdom of God coming into your life? If the kingdom of God is coming through the weakness of the penniless prophet and savior, it's coming to bear in this world through him, through the one who will give his life, who will die a death that he did not deserve, who will rise from the dead victoriously. What does that mean for us? It means the kingdom of God comes through our life through weakness. By laying ourselves down. The struggles in our marriage, the struggles with our children, laying our preferences and our rights down. It comes through weakness. The kingdom of God comes through the most unexpected of places. Yes, the kingdom is coming, but not the way that anyone ever envisions it will. So that's the first fast that we get. And everyone marvels at his answer. Jesus brings his kingdom not by simply acquiescing, And Jesus brings his kingdom not by simply revolting. He doesn't line up with the Herodians and he doesn't line up with the Pharisees. And neither can we. Second, people that address him are the Sadducees. Let's read 23 to 33. The same day Sadducees came to him, same day, another group, another set of questions, who say that there's no resurrection And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left his brother to his wife. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> what a... Well. 
Sometimes it's good to give a healthy explanation for things. And sometimes, you know, when we talk to our children, we just go, you're just wrong, okay? Okay, sorry. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he, excuse me, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Silence is another group. So at the center of this interaction, I highlighted in verse 29, is a rebuke. So the center of this reaction, interaction is a rebuke. Verse 29, you are wrong because you don't neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So let's understand here briefly who we're talking about here. Who are the Sadducees? Now, I'm just going to simplify it some just for the sake of, of time. Um, but you could say, in a sense, that the Sadducees were the liberals. They were the aristocrats. They came from educated religious families. And what they had, they inherited down. And you could say the Pharisees were more uh, the biblicists. They were more the conservatives. They believed in the resurrection and so on. But the Sadducees, they believed in God, but it was a very kind of stripped down sort of way. Uh, again, somewhat of an oversimplification, but to help maybe give you an image in your head. They were a lot like a mainstream Protestant church today. A lot like a mainstream Protestant church today. All right? Some sense of a belief in God, but something really pared down. All right? Listen to how Paul describes them. Paul describes them in Acts chapter 23. He says, when, the, uh, when Paul perceived that one part were Pharisees, excuse me, Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council's brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And this is from God's word, verse, chapter, eight, uh, verse 23, chapter 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And by the way, the Sadducees only received the first five books of the Bible. They only received the Pentateuch or the, or the Torah. So they come to him with that in mind. They come to Jesus with this question. And it's a question about what's, what, what we can call a leveret marriage. All right, And it's, we, it's, it's described to us in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And what they're doing, if you read between the lines, is they're trying to make him look a little silly, all right? They're trying to ask kind of an absurd type question just to try to kind of catch him on his heels. But really, if you understood something just very briefly about leveret marriage, it was actually a very kind and gracious way that was built into uh, the, the law of Israel to care for women. Because imagine yourself 3,000 years ago in a very rural agrarian society, and your husband dies. You'd be destitute. You would have nothing. Okay? I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the nature of women or anything. I'm talking about a social setting. 3,000 years ago, if you were living in the middle of the desert, and you were supposed to be a farmer, and you had no kids, and your husband died, and it was just you, it would be very difficult. Okay? So this is the solution for now in this space, in, in, in redemption history, in a space of what uh, history could endure at that time. It said there's a provision that you're going to be cared for. 
There's a provision that you're going to be cared for. And so these guys start giving this kind of silly example. What if it happens this time, and then it happens a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, and a sixth time, and a seventh time? And they're kind of like, see, your, your, your Bible's, it's, it's goofy. That, who's, who's her husband in heaven? And he says, you're just wrong. Because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And then he gives this in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. No marriage in the resurrection, but are like angels. We can read that. And, and, and read that, and it strike us as kind of a downer. I mean, let's just be honest. I'll just be honest, okay? And I realize I'm, I may be unique in this, you know, because I, was, I had the opportunity to meet my wife when I was 14, married at 20, had eight kids, and I realize this is not every situation, but... My marriage to my wife is the greatest earthly blessing I've ever experienced. Okay? And to say there is no marriage in the resurrection is kind of a head scratcher. How can the most joyous thing that I've experienced apart from salvation in Jesus, the most joyous thing I've experienced in this world, and he just says in a sweeping statement, there's no marriage in the resurrection. You don't get any of that anymore. You know, let's press it, okay? I mean, sexual relationships, you know, intimacy, closeness, none of that in the resurrection, he says. We have to look deeper at what he's saying. The C.S. Lewis quotes are coming to me that I didn't put in my notes. <laughs> he says we're going to be like angels in heaven. He's saying something to us that I think our minds, at least my mind and my heart, can barely scratch the surface on the beauty and the glory and the joy and excitement of. He's saying that in heaven, Jesus Christ is going to be the bridegroom. In heaven, you will be so united to Christ, you will see him and enjoy him in a way that your marriage, your greatest joys on earth, will absolutely pale in comparison to what you will experience with him. He's not giving them a downer answer. He's saying, don't you understand? Don't you understand that your marriage here on earth, this woman's marriage on earth to these seven men in your silly example was just a picture of what you were going to experience in your union with Jesus Christ. There's no need for marriage in the resurrection because you will see Jesus face to face. You'll behold him face to face. Infinite joy, infinite happiness for all eternity. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Their hearts shall be full of love. That which on earth, excuse me, that which was in the heart on earth is but a grain of mustard seed, shall be a great tree in heaven. The soul that in this world had only a little spark of divine love in heaven shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame, like the sun in the fullest brightness, which has no spot upon it. Edwards again, there in heaven is a fountain of love, 
the eternal three-in-one, is set upon without any obstacle to hinder our access to it. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in. Yes, so as to overflow the world as if it were a deluge of love. We sang it today. I knew where we were going in the sermon, but you didn't. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace that our hearts always hunger for. Our hearts always hunger for. Our hearts are longing to be deeply satisfied in this God. And marriage is a gift from God on this side of eternity to experience a foretaste of what it'll be like to be united to God in Jesus Christ. It's a gift to us. The joy that you experience with your spouse is wonderful and good. But the joy that you will experience when you see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ will make even the best marriage pale in comparison. That's the first thing he says to him. That's the first thing he says to them. But the second thing he says to them is in verse 32. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You realize what he's done here. He's quoted to them. He could have quoted from a lot of places, but I noted earlier that they only accepted the first five books of the Bible because Jesus goes to what they would already know as their scriptures. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 verse 8. He doesn't quote from Isaiah. He doesn't quote from the other prophets where God promises to keep his promises to the covenants he's made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes straight to a book that they've already received. Exodus chapter 3. And what he does is he quotes directly from it, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. He quotes the present tense. This is the the Exodus, right? This is 400 years after Joseph has died. These guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're dead in the grave. They've been dead for hundreds of years. They've been dead for hundreds of years. And he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God. Which speaks to us something that's, I think, pretty obvious on the surface, but but bears teasing out. That he is so united to his people that not even death itself can separate them from his love. That he's so united and he so identifies with his people that not even death itself can separate them from his love. He is their God. And he says something here. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're in his presence right now. One other thing I saw in the last moments when I was studying, when I got up this morning to finish this, one thing struck me. That God's not ashamed to share his name with these three men. He's not ashamed to say I'm their God. He's not ashamed to say I'm their father. I'm not, he's not ashamed to say they're mine. 
They're my people. He's not ashamed to do it. He says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's not ashamed to say that to you. He's not ashamed to say, I am your God. And I delight to come to you in Christ. I delight to identify with you and put my name upon you. And say, I am Dan's God. In verse 33, yet again, the crowds were astonished. They were absolutely confounded. They were astonished at him. Because he's given them a picture. He says, you're going to be like angels. You're going to delight in God. You're going to see him. You're going to praise God and the Lamb forever in the most rapturous strains. So the third one, the lawyer comes to him. Starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Realize what's uh, striking here is that depending on, on, on how you count and depending on what different scholars have noted, if you were to summarize all of the laws that are given to us uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, there's either 613 or 633. So we'll just pick one, 613, okay? Because I didn't go count them this week. So of all the laws that God has given to his people, 613 of them, this uh, lawyer comes up to him and says, which one is the greatest? Like, if you're really going to boil it down, okay, if I really, 613 is a lot. Maybe he's thinking to himself. And he says, just give it to me, like, give it to me on the cookies on the bottom shelf. Like, tell me like I'm a four-year-old, right? Just tell me, what is the greatest commandment? Boil it down for me. And I think the answer is pretty remarkable. Let me show you why. He says that the first and greatest commandment is this. In verse 36, uh, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says this is the great and the foremost commandment. And then he says this. That to love your neighbor as yourself hangs all the law in the prophets. So what he's saying is essentially this. He says that everything else in all of the Old Testament in some sense depends on these two commandments. To love God and the commandment to love our neighbor. This is a pretty amazing statement if we think about it here. This is the authority of the Son of God here telling us something that's absolutely amazing about the origin and design of the entire plan of the Word of God. The aim and the plan 
and the objective of this book. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? The aim, the plan, the objective of this book is that you would do two things. You would love the Lord your God with all of your being, your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, and that you would love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love your neighbor like as yourself is a pretty radical command. And what I mean by command is that it, uh, radical, is that it cuts to the root of our own sinfulness and it exposes it and by God's grace it severs it. Because, listen, the root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. Let me say that again. The root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and the desire for our own happiness apart from the happiness of other people in God. That's the opposite of the command, right? If the command is that you would love God and you would love your neighbor as yourself, the opposite is that you don't do that, okay? What's also striking here is if he doesn't cut at the desire for us to love ourselves, He doesn't say anything about our own proclivities, our appetites, our desires to love ourselves, okay? And this is very Piper-esque here for a moment. This is Christian hedonism. God doesn't say, stop wanting, stop desiring happiness. He says, instead, find that happiness in loving God and find that happiness in loving your neighbor. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, because clearly we love ourselves a lot, okay? And he doesn't poo-poo our desire for joy, for satisfaction, and so on. He says, just, you're just doing it in the absolute wrong way. You're doing it in selfish, self-promoting ways and for reasons that are selfish and self-promoting. You're doing it apart from loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So he gives us sort of the key and the answer to life here. The answer isn't to suppress our own desires for joy and excitement and happiness pleasure. He says instead they need to be redirected. They need to be pointed to love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God and love for neighbor. One of my favorite parts about being part of this church is the love that so many of us have for one another. You know, it's a great privilege because when uh, people visit us from other parts of the country, other parts of the city, that's the thing that they note the most. Just the, what seems to be the joy and the delight and the desire for people to just be around each other, to talk with each other, to live life together. That's what I hear more than anything else when I hear about the life of this church. That's the first thing that Trevor and Jess said when they came back last year. The love of the saints, the love of the brotherhood, the love of the brethren here at the church, and it is an absolute delight. Long to be marked as a church like that for the whole time that we're here. Because you know what love is? We've said this before. To love God and to love our neighbors ourselves, all love is a substitutionary sacrifice. All love is a substitutionary sacrifice. And again, here's Jesus being absolutely counterintuitive with us here. Jesus is saying, look, we all have this desire We all have this self-love of sorts, as he calls it. We all have a wanter. We all have an appetite for pleasure and so on, okay? But the counterintuitive nature of it is that we actually find our lives by losing him. We actually find 
that desire for love, that desire for joy, that desire for happiness by giving ourselves to another person. By giving ourselves to another person. And where do we see that more than in the cross of Jesus Christ? In the cross of Jesus Christ, in the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen or ever known, at the heart of it, at the center of it, was a substitutionary sacrifice. So that by laying down his life, he could give us ours back. By laying down his life, he could give us ours back. And if it's true with him, if it's true in the ultimate sense, what Jesus is giving us for is he's giving us a grace. He's giving us a, a, a meal prepared for us on a table saying, look, you want to see, you want to have that joy fulfilled? He's like, lay down your life for your neighbor. Love somebody else and see it and get the power from it by looking at what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, a substitutionary sacrifice so you could get your life back. And now, of course, we come close to a conclusion here. The questions have all been asked of Jesus, and now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. They've been amazed, they've marveled, they've been astonished, they've been quieted, they've turned away, they've gone away, and Jesus says, let me ask a question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him with a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask ask him any more questions. (laughs) Man, if I could just be like that at pastoral Q&As. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the one that was promised to come? The one who was promised to come to rescue and save his people, the anointed one. What do you think about him? Whose son was he? And they said, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. At which point Jesus says, ah, yes, you are right. He says, well, then how come if he's the son of David in the spirit How does David say, when he's writing Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Do you realize what's happening in Psalm 110? There's two people called Lord there. There's one Lord saying to another Lord, my Lord called and said, Lord. There's two God figures in Psalm 110. And so Jesus says, okay, if he's David's, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him. Look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say he cannot be David's son. He doesn't say he cannot be David's son. He says, how can he be David's son? How can he be David's son? 
And of course, the answer is that the son of David was God himself. God could only say God to God. God could only say God to God. The rightful and true son of David, the greater and better David, would be God himself to come. The Messiah, the son of David, would be the incarnate son of God. Remember, as we draw to a close here, how Matthew starts his gospel. Matthew chapter 1, very first words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's the true king. He's the true high priest. He's the rightful son of God. Caesar was pointing to it and he didn't even know it by putting it on his coin. And here we have Jesus Christ who ends the conversation by saying, I am the Messiah, I am the son of David, I am God himself. And from that point on, no one asked him any more questions. And we know, of course, that the way that this king comes, he says that he's going to put all his enemies under his feet. The way that he conquers, the way that he overcomes, is by suffering and dying for us. The Messiah, the anointed one, the rightful king, lays down his life for his people so that we could have life and we could have life everlasting. Let us pray.